John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. And then he told some soldiers, or then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money, don't accuse people falsely, be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly, and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. Eric, if you'd come on up. Eric Gentry is going to be preaching for us this morning. Eric is the associate preaching minister at the Highland Church of Christ in Memphis, Tennessee, across the Mississippi from us. But Eric grew up here in the Dallas area. And uh, his, his wife, Lindsay, and son, Noble, who's just about to have his first birthday, are here this morning with their families. We're glad to have you all here with us as well this morning. Let me pray for you Thanks, uh, before you bring the word this morning. God, we thank you so much for your story of good news. And yet sometimes this good news is a little bit surprising, a little bit different than we often hear. But we need that good news this morning. And I pray you would use uh, Eric this morning to bring that good news to us. Would you pour through him the gift of preaching so that Christ should be formed in our hearts and we might be people who make decisions today. We love you, God. We thank you for Jesus. We celebrate his birth and celebrate his death and his resurrection and long for him to return. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Colin. So I was enamored by my dad growing up and still am. My dad's a preacher. And and normally when I tell the story I'm about to tell, my dad is not in the audience, but today he is. So dad, I'm sorry you're going to have to relive this moment. Okay. So I wanted to be near my dad as often as possible, especially when he was doing the thing I admired about him most, which was preaching. So occasionally when my behavior was good, which was really rare, my mom would let me sit on the front row of the church during worship with my dad. So that's all good and well during the singing and the praying, but during the preaching it presents a problem that there is now a little six-year-old boy alone and unattended at the front of the church where everybody can see him And his dad can't quite reach him. So I suppose it was during one particularly long sermon. And those were rare, Dad. Very, very rare. But it was during one particularly long sermon. I decided I needed to take matters into my own six-year-old hands. And so I took the coloring book I was working in. And I, I flipped to the blank back page. And I wrote as large as I could in dark color. How much longer? And then I held it up. And when he didn't acknowledge me, I stood on the pew in the front row and turned my sign to the audience to gain support for my cause. That was the last time I sat in the front row that day. 
I suppose it would be poetic justice if my son back there someday holds up that sign while I'm preaching. But what I hope is that today none of you feel like you need to. Man, I come as a friend today. We were in town for the holidays anyways. All our family is in Dallas, so it's good to be here. I'm grateful to Colin for the invitation to join you at this incredible church. I've heard such wonderful things about the ministries that you have going on here. And I come as a friend today. Okay, I come as a friend who like you, has been reading Luke 1 and 2 during the Christmas season, and then you flip the page after Christmas and you get to Luke 3, and you do find this surprising account about John and Jesus, who is to follow him. We'll get there. But did you have a Merry Christmas? Did you have a Merry Christmas in your home? Man, we did. I'll tell you, it was a particularly romantic Christmas in the Gentry home. Lindsay and I and my wife went in together and bought each other a new toilet for Christmas, a new toilet at the Gentry home. Nothing says Merry Christmas quite like a new toilet. At least that's what I told Lindsay. Noble, our 11-month-old son, made out like a bandit. His grandparents spoiled him. But his favorite gift of Christmas was the chewy bones that his dog Tucker got. You know, since Christmas, they've both been chewing on the same bone. It's just that season in our life, you know. So a few weeks ago, Lindsay and I, it's late at night, and we find ourselves where we often find ourselves these days, at Ben and Jerry's ice cream, waiting in line for ice cream. Now, I don't know why we feel called to get ice cream more since having a baby, but I think there's a connection. I just haven't figured it out yet. So we're in line, and in front of us is this little couple, okay? And it is painfully obvious that they're on their first date. And it might be her first date ever, okay? I'll be gentle. It was like watching a train wreck unfold before me, okay? She didn't know what to do. She was fidgety. She was nervous, almost shaking. She didn't know whether she should grab his hand or put her hands in her pocket or cross her arms. And when she got to the glass counter with all that ice cream in front of her, it got worse because she she put her hands up on that counter and she looked in at all of these choices before her, all of these ice cream choices at Ben and Jerry's, and she just could not make a decision. And so finally we started timing her, and 15 minutes later... She still hadn't chosen. And she kept looking up at her date and laughing this little nervous laugh. Like, I really can't make up my mind. If I choose vanilla, he's going to think I'm boring. And if I choose mint, he'll think I'm expecting a kiss. Or if I choose Rocky Road, he'll know I'm overthinking it, right? And so she just stood there and didn't choose. In fact, she never chose. She ended up getting the one ice cream sundae at Ben & Jerry's that allowed her to have three different types of ice cream. Okay, and when her little date got to the cash register and pulled out his $10 bill to pay for her $9 ice cream, it was all I could do to tell her, honey, you made the wrong choice. And not exactly what you want to communicate on a first date, that you're expensive, you're indecisive, and you like ice cream a little too much. Now, now granted, I like ice cream a little too much too. I don't know if that's a sin, but making a decision's hard, but it's good for you. You know, Phyllis Tickle is this researcher and, and writer, and she says it's hard to be a 20-year-old these days. And as a 20-year-old, I, I could relate to that. And if you're 20, maybe you can understand. If you've got a 20-year-old at home sleeping on your couch, maybe you can understand. It's hard to be 20 these days. She says the reason is because 20-year-olds are having trouble finding their center or their purpose in life. She says there was a time when 20-year-olds would inherit their purpose or their center. They would live where they had grown up all their life. They go to church where they had grown up all their life. They might do what their mother or father had done for a profession. They just kind of 
inherited their purpose. But these days, she says, people are drifting in and out of their lives. They're, they're constantly plugged into electronic devices. They're never doing anything. They don't have any stability. There's no guiding center in their lives. And so kind of, it, it's, it's like they find themselves at the ice cream glass window, right? And they're looking in, and they've got so many choices in front of them that they just can't pick. And so what they end up doing is choosing the most expensive Sunday so they can have all three types of ice cream. And they say things like, oh, I'm just trying to find myself, Mom. Trying to find my purpose, my center. For the record, research shows if you, if you don't find your purpose in your 20s, it's a lot harder to find it later. Not impossible, but harder. But they're faced with so many choices that they just can't decide. Making a decision is hard, but it turns out it's, it is good for you, especially when it comes to life's biggest decisions, like bigger than ice cream, you know, decisions like your life's purpose. We might, we might say it like this, you need to live on purpose or live with purpose. You need to live decisively. A life of meaning is good for you. And it's not just good for you if you're 20. It's good for you no matter how old or young you are. So when we use the language of good, that word good, I hope what comes to mind is the use of that word in the Bible, which is most often associated with the type of news, the good news. The good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's the same word. It's good news. And when we think about the good news, what do we typically think about? We think about Jesus coming to earth, taking on flesh like we just celebrated in Christmas. Or we think about Jesus who willingly gives himself on the cross, dies, is raised from the dead on your behalf out of love for you, for all the world. That's what we think about when we think about the good news. But notice how John the Baptist in this passage Colin just read thinks about good news. You know, right after the arrival of Jesus on earth in Luke 1 and 2, you've got John the Baptist preaching this message to people who have come out to this river to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. They're coming out in repentance, and he preaches this news to them. And this is what he says. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Because the axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. See, we're not not really off to a good start. John is accusing all these people who have come out to do a good thing, repent for the forgiveness of sins. He's calling them snakes, which, if you remember from Genesis, is not something you want to be. And then all of a sudden the metaphor changes, and it was snakes who are fleeing from this fire of judgment that's burning behind them. And all of a sudden the metaphor changes, and the snakes are now trees who are planted and can't move. And there's a farmer coming with an axe who's about to chop down those trees and toss them back into the same fire of judgment that is approaching on them again. We, we're not off to a good start. And then he explains that this talk of judgment, John does, of an axe cutting down the trees, the bad trees, and leaving the good, of a fire that's burning up the bad trees and leaving the good trees, that this judgment, this fire, this axe is a person. 
a person in time in history, that it's Jesus the Christ. This is what he says in verse 16. I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather his wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Again, not any more encouraging. Not very good. A guy who brings unquenchable fire, swinging an axe and tossing wheat and chaff into the air above the same fire, judging everybody. This is not the guy we want judging everybody. We really don't want anybody judging everybody or us, but especially not somebody like this. We don't want somebody judging when the consequence of being found wanting is burning, in this case. And then look at verse 18, the very next verse. Luke says, And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. What? Nothing about this seems good, does it? Nothing about it. Let's be honest. We don't like this Jesus that much. We're tempted to go from Luke 2 to Luke 4, aren't we? I think there are reasons that we don't like this Jesus that much. He's the the axe, the farmer, and the fire all rolled into one, and all of these are representing judgment. So Jesus, apparently in this passage, after arriving on earth, born in a manger and growing to be a man, he is now the ultimate judge. And we don't really like that. I think... There are reasons we don't, and one of those, I'll admit, one of those reasons is the hellfire and brimstone sermons we heard growing up. Now, I didn't hear those at home from my dad, but where I heard them every year was at the little church camp I went to in the summer. And maybe you went to a church camp or a revival, something like this. You could pretty much be guaranteed that the last sermon, the last night of camp, when everybody was emotional, was going to be a stroll into eternal punishment, right? With all of its hellfire and brimstone and people like your next door neighbors burning in hell for all of eternity, right? And so we'd get to the end of the sermon and all of us would make these pledges on these cards. And we'd say, I'm never going to talk back to my mom ever again. And we'd have tears just streaming down our face. And say, I'm going to keep my room clean all the time for the rest of my life. And I'm never going to wear shorts to church ever again as long as I live. And you take that card and you tack it to the cross up front and you go back to your cabin just sobbing and you dream about being burned for all of eternity. It was the best night of camp. (laughs) Maybe you heard sermons like that growing up. You know, basically those hellfire and brimstone sermons capitalized on our fear that somehow we didn't do something right. You know, that somehow there's something missing in our heart and that God's judgment expressed in Jesus is just going to end up running out of control and we'll get caught up in the flames. You know, a good farmer would catch this. A good farmer knows that wheat and chaff, they would be thrown up, the chaff would blow away, be gathered to be burned, and the wheat would fall to the ground to be saved. But a good farmer knows that chaff is explosively combustible. Like to this day, there's not much of a way to stop a fire in a wheat field. Okay, Once it starts, that wheat's going to burn up right along with it. And I think those preachers would capitalize on our fear that what if we're in the wrong place at the wrong time? 
we're talking to the wrong person at the wrong time, or maybe God's just going to burn us up right along with the chaff. There's a commentator who wrote on this passage. He said, he said the primary aim is to save the wheat in this passage, not to burn the chaff, which is true. That makes us feel maybe a little bit better, but the fire's still burning. As long as that fire is burning, we're not sure that we like the one stoking it. Who in this case is Jesus? We're not sure if we like this Jesus, and we certainly doubt this is good news. Process this with me for a second. Why don't we talk about Jesus as judge much anymore? And there's got to be a better reason than a bunch of bad sermons that we heard growing up. Right? And I think it is that this depiction of Jesus, this trait of his identity, which is varied and expansive and broad, but this particular trait doesn't really cohere with our theology, our understanding of who Jesus is much anymore. In Romans, Jesus is the guy who judges us not guilty if we just have faith. You know, Jesus is the guy who just hands out not guilty verdicts, which hardly seems like judgment at all. There's no axe in Romans. There's no farmer burning up the chaff. And it's not that that's wrong. And it's not that Jesus coming in the form of a baby in a manger out of love for all the world it's, is wrong. It's just that those are pieces of who Jesus is, just like this is also a piece of who he is. And ultimately, if we adopt only those other pieces, if we look to Jesus and only understand him in those other ways, it's bad because it forces us, it allows us, sorry, to never have to make a decision, to just coast. If Jesus never will stand in judgment, then I never have to decide. And that's bad news. That's bad news because of what we might call the New Year's resolution effect, okay? The Journal of Clinical Psychology did a study on New Year's resolution. So um, somebody shouted out, what do you think the number one resolution of 2014 was? Lose weight. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Probably safe to bet that'll be the number one resolution in 2015 too. So I was reading this study and it caught, it caught me off guard. I, I'll be honest, I've never really been a person who makes goals and writes those goals down, but um, this, this study caught my attention. And so this study determined that people who make goals and write the goals down, okay, have a purpose for their life, that they are 10 times more likely to achieve those goals. Somebody who decides to have a purpose, a goal, is 10 times more likely to reach that goal. So let's go back to that resolution from 2014 and maybe the one that some of you will make in 2015 to lose weight. Okay, so um, well, let's start with women, wives. Assume that um, you're putting on a new dress and you ask your husband, um, honey, does this dress make me look fat? Okay, so um, now let's just assume for the sake of argument, it's not the most flattering dress you've ever worn. Okay, And let's say your husband restricts his judgment. He says, honey, no, it looks great. It looks great on you. Okay, to clarify, guys, that's always the right answer. Okay, a friend posted on Facebook the other day that women who carry a little extra weight live longer than the men who mention it. Okay, so (laughs) probably safe to to go ahead and say that. For the sake of argument, though, let's, let's say he doesn't say anything. He says it looks great. 
Well, because of that, he's restricted his judgment. He's not giving you a judgment. You're then less likely to recognize you need to lose weight. You're less likely then to make the goal of losing that weight, and then you're 10 times less likely to lose any weight in that year. Okay. All right, guys, let's, let's pick on the guys. So you've gained a little extra weight around the middle since having kids. It might be those late-night ice cream runs. Hard to explain. And you don't really like it, but you're not really doing anything about it. You're just buying stretchier pants. Okay, so you go to the doctor, okay, and the doctor says, he says, uh, friend, you know, you're, you're overweight, and your weight is stressing out your heart, okay? And if you don't do something about this weight, I'm seriously concerned about the well-being of your heart, and um, this is, is putting your life in danger. You need to do something about it. Okay, so that's a judgment, and a more serious judgment, a, a medical judgment in this case. And it might be that while other people have said things to you or while you've looked in the mirror and felt a certain way, until you hear that judgment, you've never been spurred to make a decision. And this is why judgment is good, because indecision is bad. Having a goal is good, and not having a goal or a purpose in your life is bad. So don't buy the Sunday with three types of ice cream. Just pick one, unless, well, unless your goal is losing weight, in which case don't go to Ben and Jerry's. And that's why it's worth exploring this passage about judgment in Luke 3, right after Luke 1 and 2. It's why it's worth occasionally still talking about Jesus as judge, because it's a part of who he is, even if we have our reservations. And the reason it's still worth it is because we know we can confirm that indecision in our life is bad, which must mean that judgment is good, that it's good news, like Luke calls it. So, I'm heading towards the end of this sermon, and what I want to do is to announce the judgment of John on you. Let me say that a little differently. Maybe let me fall under that judgment with you, because I certainly am in need of God's judgment in my own life. But let me talk to you, uh, let me be specific about who I'm talking to. We did this study at our church, and we learned surprisingly that on any given Sunday, up to 20% of the people who were there were not believers. They hadn't given their life to Jesus in baptism. They're just coming to, to check it out, hear about Jesus. So let me assume that probably those numbers are similar here, and that there are people in here who haven't made the decision yet to follow Jesus. So let me talk to you first in the spirit of judgment. You know that feeling that you get sometimes? It's a feeling of loneliness, of despair, hopelessness maybe. You feel like you're, you're wandering through life, that you're kind of making a mess of it, that you keep messing up relationships, you're, you're ruining them, you're ruining decisions, career choices, you don't feel valuable, you keep asking yourself this question, what's wrong with me? Well, let me answer that as graciously as I can. But honestly, sin is what's wrong with you. Sin is the problem. And you need, according to John, to repent. No, sin isn't just saying a bad word here or there or sleeping with somebody or cheating on your taxes. Sin is a condition. I've heard it, I've heard it described as our human propensity to mess things up. It's what's messing things up again and again in your life. It's why your life seems purposeless and 
out of control. And if you don't make a decision to get rid of that sin, to repent like the people in this passage are doing, it's going to keep ruining your life. And the more difficult news, that's bad, the more difficult news is that Jesus, this one who came as a baby, lived on this earth and died for you and was raised from the dead so you could be free from that sin, that same Jesus will not tolerate you not accepting his offer of grace. You're guilty. You're guilty. And that's a hard verdict to hear. I'm sorry. But I guess like my roommate used to say, I'm sorry, I'm not sorry. I love you too much not to tell you that the axe is already at the root of the tree, that the farmer is tossing you up, the wheat and the chaff, together to be burned in the fire. It's scary. It is, except that there is something you can do about it. And that's why when you read this passage in this light, this seemingly bad news is suddenly transformed because there's something you can do about the coming judgment of Jesus. You can repent. And the passage promises that when you do, God will fill you, the one who is more powerful than I, the one who's to come, John says. That same God and Savior will fill you with the power of the Holy Spirit, the power to then leave your life of sin. And when you read it like that, this passage about judgment does, in fact, become good news that just gets better and better and better. Okay, so now I want to talk to a different group. So if you're in this room today and you've, you've already given your life to Jesus, you've already taken on Jesus in baptism, which I would assume is most of you, apparently you need to hear a word about judgment, and I do too. Because in this passage, the people that John calls the brood of vipers, okay, the people that John announces this judgment are on are, in fact, religious people. Right? These are not you know, just people standing around in the marketplace. These are people who are standing in line to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, people who are repenting of their sin, people who want to be in good relationship with God. These are people like you and me. But there's this crucial line in there that indicates us, Those of us who've given our lives to Jesus still need to hear this message. It's in verse 8. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Or in other words, you need to live a life of purpose. The judgment of Jesus eliminates any space in your life which you might be using to coast by. Jesus has expectations of those who have repented, of those who he has filled with. With the Holy Spirit, he expects their life will show they've repented and that they will then produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So I got a big laugh out of an email somebody sported to me. There's another church in town that sends an email, a weekly email to their whole uh, church membership about things going on at church, stuff coming up. And I love, this may not be a problem at Greenville Oaks. In fact, I'm sure it's not a problem at Greenville Oaks. But occasionally at Highland and Memphis, we have difficulty getting some church people to volunteer to help with little things. Okay. I'm sure that's none of you here, but you know, maybe it's filling the communion cups or being an usher or something like that. We sometimes occasionally have trouble. So I got a kick out of this email. It said, this goes out to all the membership from the church minister. Also, we need 30 people to help break down tables and chairs in the gym at 7.30 p.m. right after class. Has y'all ever heard anything like that? Yeah. Probably, okay. And then he puts in bold, all caps, and underlined, remember, Christians are supposed to do stuff, not just watch. 
And as a minister, I just wanted to give this guy the slow clap. You know, I just felt myself rising out of my seat, right? Basically, I think what Luke and John in this passage are communicating about Jesus is that Jesus, the judge, expects something similar of us, what that frustrated minister was saying. Hey, Christians, you're supposed to do stuff, not just watch. Remember what God says about Christians in Revelation who are lukewarm, the the inspiration he gives to John, that he spits them out of his mouth, Christians who are just coasting by. Well, as somebody who's dealt with spit up for the last 11 months, I can tell you, it's not what you want to be. There's nothing good about that. This isn't a guilt trip, you know. I've talked to Colin. I know that so many of you are giving of yourselves in these really incredible ways. There are so many ministries flowing out of Greenville Oaks into the surrounding community. Y'all are blessing people just in mighty ways. And I want to encourage you to continue doing that. But what I'm sure of in a church like this and a church like mine is that some of us are coasting by. And the judgment of Jesus is this warning against that. But it's not only a warning, it's an invitation. It's Jesus saying, let me invite you to a life of meaning and purpose. He expects you to decide to repent like many of you have done. But then he expects you to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. He says, you need to have a goal, and here it is. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And then the next lines, which Colin read earlier, kind of line out what that would look like. And They include all kinds of things like caring for others, not lying or cheating, being content with your income. But in reality, what we know is that all of Scripture lines out what it means to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And we know that. The question is not whether we know it, but will we actually do it? That's the question. So if you're coasting by in your life and you've got no direction, maybe you're a believer, maybe you're not a believer, maybe you're repentant, maybe you're not. It is time to find some direction. It's time to make a goal, to make a purpose. And maybe New Year's is a good time. You know, New Year's resolution is nowhere in the Bible. But it's certainly a good time to stop stop and think about the confession that you made years ago or the confession you still need to make and ask yourself, does my life line up with that confession? Am I producing fruit in keeping with Repentance, because, and this is why, Jesus is not only the baby born in the manger. You know, Jesus is not only the Son of God hanging on a cross. Jesus is not only the one risen from the tomb, but Jesus is Lord of all who stands in judgment. And his judgment is a gracious one, an invitation to a life of meaning and purpose. And what I promise you is, if you will find that purpose... Find the ways in which your gift can glorify the kingdom of God that you will thank me for it later. And thank Jesus, the judge, and Lord of all. Will you pray with me while Colin comes up and dismisses us? God, I am so grateful for the good news that you deliver. The good news of great joy of a Savior born in the city of Bethlehem, which we've celebrated at Christmas And the good news that we find here of the farmer who cuts down the trees and the fire that is burning. And we know, God, that somehow those two sides of Jesus' identity balance out. And they call us to a life where we rest in your gracious love and also strive to do stuff for you, God. To glorify you, to expand your kingdom on this earth. And I pray that you give us the wisdom and the courage, boldness to do just that. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.
Thank you so much, Eric. Would you give Eric a hand thanking him for coming and being with us today? Thanks for letting God work through you, and we pray for the church in Memphis as sister churches that God would continue to bless the work there. Well, this is an interesting call, isn't it? Good news of great judgment. But I think a a fitting word for many of us as we start into a new year. Uh, One of my wise friends in Denver that I got to know when I was there at the church at Littleton uh, used to always talk about how the the root word side, C-I-D-E, means to kill, right? Homicide or pesticide or many words like that. But he used to always talk about decide. And he said to decide is to kill all other choices. So many of us have made that decision to maybe partner up with a spouse for life. We made a decision uh, we, we, to, to kill all other choices, not kill literally, but to, to, to make sure no one else is in that deciding pool that we've made a decision for one, right? And in this new year, maybe you need to make some similar decisions, to say no to certain things. Some of you may be making decisions about uh, a weight this year and wanting to make some challenges and resolution. Well, that's a decision not to eat certain things and a decision to get up and do certain things, isn't it? Whatever your challenge is this year, uh, whether it's keeping it fruit and repentance just like Jesus challenges us to, or whether it's uh, making a decision to follow him, we'd love to talk with you about that decision today. In fact, if you'd like to put on Jesus as Lord in baptism, there are elders and prayer leaders in the back, or I'd love to talk with you today if you'd like to make that decision. We can do that in just a few moments. But we're glad you were here. Be standing now as I give our benediction. <clears throat> May God bless you this week to decide. Whatever judgment that you may feel from this message, maybe a a judgment that's felt to make a decision to put away all other choices and to pursue the one decision that's most important in our lives, and that's making Jesus Lord in our lives. Amen? May we love God, may we love people, and may we serve others. Go in peace.